0: The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. Typically on the Sundays that I preach, I'm up at 5 going through my sermon notes trying to figure out, you know, do I really need to say this and, and how can this be a little bit more fluid? And then by 7.30 I'm over at Hillsborough where we park our trailer and I'm pulling stuff out of the trailer and putting it in my car so that I can bring it here and and then by 8.30, things are well underway here at the school. We're setting all this up and the pipe and drape and Journey Kids. And by 9.30, we're doing our huddle up, which is where all of our volunteers come together. And we just kind of pray over the morning and, and get things rolling with Journey Kids and checking the children in. By 10.30, most of us are here listening to the announcements. Most of us, uh, not all of us, but most of us. By 11.30, things are done. We're packing things up. By 12.30, the trailer is more or less fully loaded up. And then we're taking it back over to Hillsboro. And by 1 o'clock, I'm home where Sarah is, my wife, with two kids who she's had to uh, wake up, get dressed, get fed, get them in the car, get them here, load them out, bring them in, check them in, check them out, load them up, get them home and feed. And so am I making an unapologetic plea for you to help us load everything up? Absolutely. But the point that I'm really driving at is that Sundays, Sundays are tiring for me. I'm tired on Sunday afternoons. Sarah's tired on Sunday afternoons. So. Two weeks ago when Sarah came to me and asked me that Sunday afternoon if she could treat us to Cracker Barrel, I'm like, do I look like the kind of guy that passes up free food? So you're babysitting money. If you want to take us out to dinner, I'd be happy to enjoy some country fried steak with some hash brown casserole and some dumplings and some corn, some biscuits and jelly. Man. About 10 of y'all aren't going to hear another word I'm saying this morning because you're already thinking about lunch. And that's why i would try to get you out of here at 1120, 1125, so you can beat the church crowd in Williamsboro to Cracker Barrel. You laugh, I have seen some of you leave as I get there, so I know it happens. And so we're sitting in this restaurant and a group of six or seven college-age kids sits next to us, and I, I knew I was getting old when kid comes naturally with, with the college-age prefix, but... Nonetheless, it's six or seven of them, and they sit, like, right beside us. Like, I could reach over and, like, touch this guy's shoulder in a really awkward way if I wanted to, but we're ridiculously close together. And as Sarah and I are sitting here, and and she's across from me, and Grace is here, and Uriah's there, and the kids are right here, the college students, I noticed that they're passing back and forth some gospel tracts. A gospel tract that I knew for firsthand experience was, was really theologically shallow. It was shallow in the theology, a little heavy on the one, two, three, pray after me evangelism technique. But we didn't know if they were giving those out or if they had been given to them. So Sarah asked rather notchulantly, she was like, so were you guys passing those out or did somebody give them to you? And then the girl that was right beside her said, we found them outside. And then she turned and started talking to the girl on the other side of her. Okay, thanks for the in-depth explanation of what you're doing with those gospel tracts. And so we knew based on what we could hear from the conversation that this was a group of, of Christians. And so we try again. So what church are you guys with? Oh, we go to church in Richmond. And then just instantly disengage. I'm like, all right, well, you know, if the questions won't get them, the humor will, right? Because I'm pretty funny, right? <laughs> I'm getting that laugh track installed, I'm telling you. And so I tell the guy right beside me, I said, well, hey, at least by not being at church tonight, you don't have to wait for a, uh, you know, a seat at the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, and then boom, talking to the other person next. So I'm like, all right, I give up. I quit. I tried, I failed, we're done. Y'all have a good night, enjoy your drive back, babe. We're leaving, get the check, you're still paying, right? And so we're driving around, around Waynesboro. after this, I'm kind of reflecting back on this failed attempt at communication. I'm trying to figure out, man, just, ah, it was so awkward. And then I begin to think, well, what did they hear from their side of the conversation? And I begin to replay this in my mind, the things that we had said, just trying to figure out what they would know about Sarah and I through the course of this conversation. And I remember asking things like, "Things like, I got my water this week, uh, are you giving those tracts out or does somebody give them to you? Things like, well, what church are you guys a part of? Things like, well, we're here together eating dinner while the church crowd is in church. And I realized they would have no clue, based on that conversation, anything about me and Sarah other than the fact that we're a young married couple asking them questions about spiritual things which they repeatedly shot down time and time again. And I thought to myself uh, as I was driving, I was like, man, I never want to lead a church. I never want to be part of a leadership team of a group of people that isn't more in tune with the opportunity to share Christ or at the very least make a connection so that you can enjoy a little bit of mutual fellowship, one group of believers to the next. I it's like, man, is this a reflection on them, a reflection on their church, their I mean, I just, I don't know what was going on, but I do know that as a pastor, I have a couple of obligations or, or responsibilities, if you will. And one of them is obviously to never set a bar or a level of expectation of something that I myself am not willing to pursue. But second to that, I believe that if Jesus sent the Holy Spirit so that we could be empowered to evangelize, to share the good news with our friends, to the neighbors, to the nations, if Jesus sent the Holy Spirit so we could do that, then evangelism must be something fairly important. And so I think that one of my jobs, one of my duties as an elder here is to make sure that we're all equipped with how exactly, or at least perhaps one technique of sharing the gospel, of reaching our friends. And so for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to focus on that. We're going to take a look at the who's, the why's, the what's, the how's, the when's of evangelism, of simply sharing the good news. We're ultimately going to land this plane in Colossians chapter 1, but before we get there, I want to share with you a story found in John chapter 9 that we didn't cover on our way through Mark. If you want to turn there, that's fine. I'm going to paraphrase for the sake of time, but just remember as we go through this story here that we find in John chapter 9 that the first two questions that we're going to answer are the who's, and the what's of evangelism, of sharing the good news. So in John chapter 9, we found a man who had been blind from birth. And as Jesus and his disciples walked past this man, his disciples asked him, all right, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents, for him to be born this way? And Jesus said, loosely speaking, it's a wrong assumption there, boys. He was born blind so that I can do this. And then he gathers some dirt and he spits into it and he makes these mud balls and he rubs them into this blind guy's eyes. And he says, now go and wash your eyes out. (laughs) All right, uh, thanks, Jesus. I wouldn't have needed to if you hadn't put mud balls in my eyes. But nonetheless, this guy washes his eyes out and as he does, he regains his sight. Well, he sees for the first time. He was born blind. And of course, he's hooting and hollering. Life is good. He has his sight. But the problem with this it's that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. <gasps> Pharisees didn't like that. Remember who the Pharisees are, right? The ultra religious, the we're going to gain our salvation by our adherence to the law of Moses and we can do it better than everyone else. How dare he do a miracle on the Sabbath? I mean, mixing that mud, that was work. Clearly violating the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees have a problem with this. And they bring this guy in for question. They're like, hey, how, how is it that you can see? Tell us what happened. And the blind man said, well, he put mud in my eyes made out of his spit and dirt and told me to wash them out. And I did, and I can see. It's great. And so now the Pharisees were thinking about this, and and they said to themselves, well, clearly Jesus is not of God because he is violating the Sabbath. So if he's working on the Sabbath and breaking the law of Moses, he can't be from God. But then other Pharisees are like, well, wait a minute. If this guy's a common sinner, how is it that he has the power to do this miracle in the first place? And so they're kind of... uh, bickering back and forth and finally they call for this blind guy who can now see to come back and at this point he's probably wondering what's it matter that he did this on the sabbath can't you see that i can see this is great and so they ask him well well what do you think about this man and his answer was uh he's a prophet i mean he he's got power of some sort and so now they're scratching their head trying to figure out can we even verify that this dude was legitimately blind in the first place and so they found the blind guy who can now see his parents try to work that into a, a sentence They find his parents, and they're like, is this your son? And his parents are like, yes, he is, and yes, he was born blind, but we don't know anything about how he can see now. He's a grown man, you can ask him. You see, mom and dad were scared because they liked Jesus, but they were Jews, and they knew that if they said that they liked Jesus, they'd be kicked out of the synagogue and wouldn't be able to worship with their friends. And so they're like, look, he's a grown man, he can see, why don't you ask him? So they go back to him another time, and they say, come on, dude, give glory to God. Tell us Jesus is a sinner. And this is the guy's response. This is fascinating. This right here, I believe, is the key to natural evangelism. He replied back whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. See, sometimes I think that we sell ourselves short with our ability to share the gospel with our friends. Well, if I try to share the gospel with somebody, they're going to ask me what I think about the philosophical conundrums that are inherent to an amillennialistic, eschatological view of the kingdom of God. What am I going to do about that? Or what if they ask me to uh, delineate between the nuances of egalitarianism and complementarianism? What if they ask me if I'm sub, super, or infralapsed? Uh, you see, I'm being facetious here. But the thing is, we have this mentality sometimes that says that if I don't know as much as the apostle Paul knows about the Bible, I ain't sharing Jesus with nobody. And ain't nobody got time for that. But we do that, don't we? Sometimes we think to ourselves, I'm just not even going to work my way into this conversation because what if they ask me something that I don't know? Or what if they ask me a question about theology or what my church teaches or what I think about this or this? And and because I don't feel like I'm equipped to do that, I'm just going to leave Jesus out of the conversation because I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to look bad. But what do we see in John 9? We see a man who has been changed by the grace of God, simply telling people what has been done for him by Jesus. What if evangelism is really that simple? What if it's just really people telling others what's happened to them? So who evangelizes? Who shares the good news? Anyone who's been changed by the power of God. I mean, look at this guy. He can't shut his trap. Every time he's in front of them, look, I can tell you this, he fixed me. I don't know if he's a sinner. I mean, that's not a very good Christology, is it? He said, I don't know, but I do know that I was blind, and now I see. And so for that, I'm thankful. Jesus tells his followers at the end of the Gospels, he's like, go worldwide with this good news and tell everybody. We see that as we're working our way through the book of Colossians now, that a man named Epaphras heard the good news from Paul in Ephesus, went another 120 miles downriver, and planted a church because of how changed he was by the power of the gospel of God. We don't need a Ph.D. to share the good news. When asked what had happened to him this blind man just simply said look he's changed me. And so evangelism is not engaging a culture with a dissertation on all the finer points of anyone's systematic theology. It's not about spouting how much knowledge you have or what you learned. And those things are those things can be good. But remember knowledge alone just makes one arrogant. So it's wisdom that we strive for, but we don't even need a lot of that. I mean look who's preaching to you. It's simply some of y'all got that. It's simply changed people. Telling people how it is that they've been changed. So who evangelizes? We do. How? Simply telling people what God has done. Why? Why do we evangelize? Why do we tell people the good news? Why is this blind man in John 9 telling everybody what's been done for him? Well, that's kind of an absurd question, isn't it? I mean, how could you not tell somebody when something like that happens to you? If you checked your bank account today and you found that it had a few extra zeros or at least didn't have a negative sign in the front of it, You'd be telling people, because we like to share good news. Some people give a, a variety of, of motives for evangelism. Well, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, so we've got to proclaim the gospel. And, and there are souls on the way to hell right now, so we need to change that. And well, Jesus told us to do it, and we've got to obey Jesus, so let's do this. And, and if we get the gospel into the entire world, we can make Jesus come back because he said. And to, now, I'm not going to argue this morning for or against the validity of those reasons. Some are valid, some not so much. But what I am going to do is remind us that our sovereign God does not need us, does not need us to lift one finger for his purposes to be achieved. Do you really think that the God who created everything that we see is letting everything ride on our shoulders? I don't think so. And so if he doesn't need us to evangelize, the question is, well, why? And I would say that whether we eat, Drink or evangelize with whatever we do, we do it for one purpose. One purpose only to glorify God so that the world can worship our Creator. I believe this morning that evangelism is an act of worship that's fueled by gratitude over the grace that we have received from God in our conversion. Evangelism is an act of worship, which leads us to the what. All right, if we're going to tell people what God has done for us out of gratitude, among a variety of other reasons, if we're going to be so consumed by what has been done for us that we want to share with people what's been done for us, then the question is, okay, so what exactly has been done for us? What is it that we want to tell people that has changed us that we, in turn, through sharing with people, want to see God do the same thing for them? What is that? I'm glad you asked. Because Paul answers this beautifully in Colossians chapter 1. Now, if you recall from last week, we ended the message, Walt ended his message last week, with Paul exhorting the believers in Colossae to be thankful to God, giving thanks to God. Why? What has God done? Well, Paul summarizes this in three verses that we're going to unpack, absorb, and then dwell in. See, Paul is telling the Colossians that as they're filled with the knowledge of God, as they are understanding God's will, as they're bearing fruit, As their strength and give thanks to God. Why? Because God has qualified them, or you, as Paul is writing this, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now think about that one for a second. Who is Paul writing to? Is Paul writing to a group of Jews who have been part and parcel of God's promises for thousands of years? No. Is he writing to a, a group of Gentiles who were raised as pagans but then became proselytes of, of the Jewish faith and, and therefore were able to share in with the promises and blessings of Israel? No. Paul is writing to the Gentiles, those who weren't born to the family of God, those who weren't God's chosen people. They weren't given the promises that Israel was given. They weren't given the law of Moses like Israel was given the law of Moses. They weren't given the conditional promises of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. I mean, none of that was applicable to them. None of that is applicable to us. And yet Paul says that God has qualified you. God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. And if this is your first time this morning and realizing that you're a Gentile, I apologize that I didn't give you a spoiler alert ahead of time. So how does this happen? How is it that we Gentiles, how is it that these people who weren't born into the promises of God born into the family of God, born as part of God's chosen people, how is it that Paul says that we now and that the believers in Colossae have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in life? Well, it's found through the cross of Christ, where Jesus died and purchased for himself a bride, not just of Jews, but of Gentiles. Jesus didn't die for one people group, he died for the world. And Paul begins to lay this out a little bit. See, I believe the most condensed expression of the gospel, the good news, in and of itself is found in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that the gospel is this, that Jesus died, according to our, or died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel condensed. But the question is, okay, well, what does that accomplish? What does that gospel do? How is that good news? And I think we have here one of the most concise, clear explanations of the gospel benefits for us found in verses 13 and 14, where Paul simply tells us that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So let's unpack this, because Paul is saying a lot in these sentences. He begins by reminding the Christians in Colossae that prior to God's gracious deliverance, they were inhabitants in the kingdom of darkness. In other words, they were part of the realm of darkness that belonged to Satan, that was under his power. Now, Paul's not talking about their place in the Roman Empire. Paul's not talking about the fact that they're now undergoing persecution because of their faith in Christ. He's not talking about their social status and how now they're at the bottom of the pecking order because they are followers of this rebel named Jesus. He's not talking about their poverty their sickness. He's reminding them that apart from God's grace, they were absolutely dead in their sins, hopeless, separated from God, estranged from his family. They were under Satan's power. Slaves to their own depravity. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Jews who refused to believe in him? He said, Look, guys, you're of your father, the devil. And what your father does, you're going to do. Because that's who you're a part of. That's who you belong to. See, contrary to popular belief, we're not born good. We're not even born philosophically, morally neutral like the tabula rasa. It says, Well, you're a blank slate. Society or your family can make you... With, no, we're, we don't like it because it offends our sensibilities, but we're born bad. We're born corrupted. We're born in sin. And just as soon as we're humanly able, we add our own sin to the mix. And so fundamentally, we don't even have to teach our kids to be bad. All right? Is that the struggle? Oh, my kid's so good, I've got to teach them how to be bad. I need to teach my son how to lie to me. I need to teach my kids to fight with each other. How many of you have ever had to teach your kids to fight with each other? And if you're raising your hand, there's room for repentance uh, in this message later. We're born physically alive and yet spiritually dead. And not mostly dead for you Princess Bride fans. All the way dead. And if you're not a Princess Bride fan, that's evidence of your own depravity. (laughs) Different message. But that's why Paul tells us in Romans 3 that all of us have fallen short of God's glory that all of us have sinned that none of us are seeking God that none of us are good that every single one of us have turned to our own way because we want to determine for ourselves what's right, what's wrong, what's best for us so the problem is not fundamentally our sin so much as our heritage because we're born in Adam's race and Adam's race is really under the power of Satan big problem Paul goes so far as to call Satan the god of this world. So Paul says that none of us seek God, that none of us are good, we've all gone astray. None of us can any longer adequately reflect the image of God in our own being. We've all marred that. And so then the question for us is, if that's true, if Apart from the grace of God, all I want is to pursue my own selfish desires. If apart from the grace of God, all I want to do is be the king of my life, the ruler of my domain, if all I want to do apart from the grace of God is do whatever benefits me, then what in me could possibly compel God to save me? What in us would motivate God to save us at the expense of the life of his own son? Absolutely nothing. God didn't save us because of our awesomeness. Jesus didn't die for us because his father said, you know what, if I have to spend eternity with you and the Holy Spirit, I'm just going to be really lonely. No. See, God was perfectly content prior to the creation of mankind. I would submit that he could be perfectly content apart from us. But yet God has chosen to save us. Why? To showcase his love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his power. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. We who were blind, he has brought out of that darkness. But God didn't stop there. All right? He could have. He really could have. God could have said, you know what? An eternity in hell separated from me is no fun for anyone, so I'm just going to nix that whole idea. Hell no longer exists, and if you don't want my son here on earth, and when you die, I'll just let you go off into the, into the nothingness, into the void, you can cease to exist. God could have done that. I mean, I, don't, I can't think of a moral way that, that that wouldn't be. I mean, you could argue the finer points, but what I'm getting at is that God didn't just stop there. God didn't simply pull us rescue us from the domain of darkness. Paul says he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, that's radical. That's radical. See, God is not merely interested in removing the punishment that your sins deserved. He's not merely interested in satisfying His wrath against your sin, but God wants something greater. He's brought us into a Son's kingdom. Three years Jesus walked on this earth. All the parables, all the pictures, all the symbols, everything that pointed towards His kingdom, God has now brought us into. For now and for eternity. And so the what of evangelism is really simple. God has rescued us from hell has given us eternal life. And as we finish out verse 14, we can see that entrance into this kingdom, the way that God can do this, the way that he can forgive us, is through the redemption that's found only through the personal work of his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. And so what is redemption? Paul kind of answers it. It's the forgiveness of sins. Perhaps my favorite illustration about redemption involves a a fictitious story. Maybe you've heard it before. But it's of a young boy who builds for himself a sailboat. And he puts a lot of work into this thing. And he takes the mast and he attaches it and he pulls everything tight and, and he makes sure that he, he caulks the wood on this thing so that it flows and then he sands it down and then he paints it and he puts his little initials on the bottom of it. And man, he's proud of this boat. Loves this boat. And he's wondering, ah, oh, man, is this thing going to float? I mean, how many of you have ever built a paper airplane that doesn't go anywhere? Kind of disappointing, right? All right, I've never built a boat, but this boy did. And so he goes out to the lake one day, and he puts it on the water to see, if, to see if it'll work. And sure enough, a little breeze begins to blow, and it catches that sail and begins to push the boat. And he's like, yes! Look at my boat! <laughs> my boat's awesome! But as the wind continued to blow, it blew it further into the lake and further into the lake, and he tried to follow it, but finally the water just got so deep that he said, I can't get my boat. And so he goes back home, and his, his mom sees that his face is all red, and he's been crying because, man, this boat was precious to him. And she said, well, what's the matter, son? Did your boat work? And he said, oh, it worked, but it worked too well, and I've, I've lost it. Nothing to do, right? So a couple days later, this boy is walking home from school, and he passes this the second-hand store, and right in the window of the store is his boat. And so he goes in, he tells the guy behind the counter, hey, you've got my boat. And he picks it up, and he begins to walk out of the store, and the store owner says, I'm sorry, son, but that boat belongs to me. I, I paid cash for it this morning. And the boy said, no, no, you don't understand, sir. This is my boat. I built it. Look, I can show you where I, I got the little paint smear over here, and, and I scratched it over here, and, and look, here are my initials on this thing. And the, the store owner said, I'm sorry, son. I paid money for this boat, and if you want the boat, you're going to have to buy it. It cost you five bucks. Well, this boy didn't have five dollars. And so he went home and he, he scrounged up his allowance and he, he did a few odd jobs just enough to get that $5 and finally he ran back to the store and he threw his money on the counter and he grabs his boat and he wraps it in his arms and he's walking out of the store and as he's walking out the shop owner overhears him saying you're my boat twice now. Once because I made you. and Secondly because I bought you. That is redemption. That is Jesus on his cross, bearing his father's wrath for sins that he never committed to satisfy God's justice in a way that I never could so that God could look at me and say, you're forgiven. My son has saved you, has bought you. You're mine. That's what Jesus did for us. The gospel is not simply really what we get or or what we can do or what happens next. The gospel is the proclamation by the Son of God that says, it's finished. I have purchased my people. It's not about what we could do for ourselves. It's about what's been done for us. It's not about who we could become by our own strength, but about who God has created us to be in Christ. It's about grace and peace to us from God our Father, as Paul started this letter with. It's about a present reality not just a future hope. So I went to Humpback Rock a couple of weeks ago. The people at Anytime Fitness told me that I can't work out there as often because my Herculean physicality is intimidating to other people, and, and so they're losing business. I don't know why you're laughing. I'm just trying to tell you a true story. And so I go to Humpback Rocks, and, and it wasn't the best weather that day. I mean, it was kind of drizzly, cloud cover. Temperature wasn't that warm. But I knew that if I could just climb above the cloud cover then I could sit on top of this rock and there would be nothing but blue sky and sunshine above me and there would be the clouds below me and it would be an awesome time of prayer with God. As this transition to Waynesboro is coming up I'm trying to find excuses to do prayer walks and prayer mountain climbs or prayer buffet visits whatever you want to call them. You laugh, you've been there. And so I get out of the car and And I begin to jog. (laughs) I'm I'm jogging this trail. And about five strides later, I realize I'm out of breath. And so I just said, you know what? Maybe a brisk walk. Maybe any kind of walk is better for me. And so I begin to walk up the path to Humpback Rock. How many of you have been there? All right, several of you. Good, you know what I'm talking about. You can make fun of me with me later. And so I'm climbing up and... And I'm getting a little wet because that mist that was you know, just misting down there it was a little bit heavier the higher up I go. And so my lungs are burning, my legs are burning, my clothes are wet because somebody had to stop at the bench a couple of times and catch their breath. And I'm realizing, man, I am out of shape. This is not fun. Why am I doing I'm doing this because there's an awesome time with God at the top i got to remember that, And so I keep on going and I'm trying to figure out how far to the blasted top this mountain is, and what am, why am I doing this? And I really just want to go out on the car and have a quality prayer time in my car, because we can do that too, right? But then finally I'm there. I'm like, "Yes. And I climb out onto the rock and I realize, man, I'm, I'm, I'm misjudged the cloud cover because it's white everywhere. I'm not above this cloud, I'm in this cloud. And once you're on top of the rock face, all the wind that's going over top of the mountain is now doing what? It's pushing this mist against me. So now it's cloudy. I'm even more cold. I'm even more wet. The rocks are slick and wet. And so I can't even enjoy climbing this thing because I'm like, oh boy, I'm going to feel really stupid if I die up here. And nobody knows that I came here because I wanted to spend an awesome time praying with God at the top of this mountain, which is supposed to be in the sunshine right now, but it's not. And so I sat there and I prayed briefly. And it was a struggle. I'm like, all right, God, I was looking forward to this, but this isn't what I thought it would be. I'm just going to go back down now. And I thought as I was going up that I was able to push through this because there's going to be an awesome time with got at the end of it. I'm like, man, there's all kinds of theological goodness in this because, you know, all things work together for good, and so, you know, I'm going to trudge through this, and I'm going to see the sunshine, and it's going to be an awesome view, and it's going to be worth it, but you know what? I never saw it. I mean, yeah, I went back to the car thinking to myself, man, I'm so glad that I have the Holy Spirit within and I can really commune with God anywhere I want. I was just hoping for something better and I was working for something better. And unfortunately, there is a lot of garbage floating around these days that says that if you're in Christ, then what God wants for you is your financial prosperity and he's going to take away all your sickness and you're not going to struggle with this and, and life is going to be a bed of roses and great for everyone. But that's not the gospel. I mean, Paul, as he's writing this letter, is just a handful of years away from his execution for being a follower of Christ. Where was Paul's health, wealth, and prosperity? It was found in the personal work of Christ. And so the good news isn't this is what you can get out of your salvation. The good news is you have been saved, and that should be enough for us. Paul says, don't tell people that life is going to be hunky-dory. We know better than that. We know better than that. It's hard. And there's a lot of questions we're left with at the end of the day because we can't understand how a God who loves us as much as He claims to could let us go through some of the things that He's brought us to. But it's worth it because we get Christ. So Paul says, give thanks to God who's delivered us from the domain of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So as our band comes forward and begins to lead us in a time of response and worship, I really just have two questions for you. The first one's a familiar question. It's one I'll probably ask every time I preach. That question is simply this. Are you willing to stop trusting in yourself and start trusting Christ to be your Savior. Because I know in a crowd this big, statistically, there's at least one of you that don't believe that you need what Jesus has done to make you right with God. I've never killed anybody. I'm a good person. I'm here at church, not at the beach, where half of us wish we could be this morning. But are you willing, perhaps for the first time, the only time in your life, to acknowledge the holiness of Christ, the reality that you are a sinner, that you have fallen short of that image of perfection, are you willing to turn from yourself and turn towards Christ? Jesus didn't die for Jews only. He died for Jews and Gentiles. He didn't die simply for people who lived in the Middle East. He died for Americans. We know from the readings of John and Revelation that in his death, Jesus purchased for himself a bride, a church from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. The gospel offer of forgiveness is extended to this globe. It's extended to you this morning if you're willing to trust Christ as your Savior. Walt and I will be here in the front. We'll be down here by these doors uh, as we sing these songs in a couple minutes. If you have any questions about, well, what does it mean to trust Christ? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be saved? If you have questions about that, we'd love to speak with you. If you don't think that this is the best place to do it, let us know. We'll sit with you at Mud House or anywhere, anywhere you want. We would love to talk to you about what it means to place your faith in Jesus Christ. As we're going to wrap things up this morning, we've left one question unanswered, and that's the when of evangelism. When do we do this? We know that the people who evangelize are the ones who have experienced God's grace. We know they evangelize out of gratitude. We know that what we say is simply that God has saved us through the work of His Son and will save anyone who trusts Jesus as Savior. And so when do we do this? Well, when God gives us the opportunity to, right? See, if you're like me, sometimes you miss out on it. Sometimes you're too busy thinking about what's in front of you, that you tune out the need around you. All of us have done that. None of us are perfect in that arena. But I wonder, would you be willing to take that action step this week if God brings it across your path? I believe that the more we realize what's been done for us, the more naturally it's going to spill out of us. Not out of obligation, but as an act of worship. So our journey marker for this week, our take-home thought is this. Though evangelism, though sharing our faith is often work, and it is, it can be, it should always be worship. Though evangelism is often work, I mean, we're going to Guatemala, there's some work involved in that, but we're going because Jesus is worth it, and we want people to worship Christ. We want to see His saving power fall on these people in a way they've never experienced so that we can spend eternity with them, worshiping the one who died to make it possible second question was this, are you willing to pray this morning for those of you that are believers, those of you that are followers of Christ, are you willing to pray this morning that God this week would give you the opportunity to share your faith? Would you pray that God also gives you the boldness that you'll need to take that step? We don't have all the answers. We don't need all the answers because we know this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's good news worth sharing. Let's pray. Fathers, we wrap things up this morning and enter into a time of, of music. Father, I'm thankful that, that even in my own life this week, as I have seen missed opportunities, that I've never once sensed condemnation from you from my cowardness. Father, I'm thankful that, that when I miss opportunities to worship Christ by telling others what has been done for me, I'm thankful, Lord, that you're powerful enough, you're sovereign enough, that that's not going to destroy any plan that you have. Father, salvation is of you, not of me. You've not called us to convince, you've called us to converse. You've called us to be messengers of the good news that it is finished. Father, I'm grateful that salvation for us is a matter of faith. Do we believe? So Father, I pray that you'd be with us. For those that are here this morning that are still wrestling with their faith, that are still fighting that internal battle of whether or not they're willing to submit to you and say, I can't save myself. Father, I'm so thankful that there's no such thing as the person who would want Christ that you in response would say, well, no, you're not good enough because none of us are good enough. None of us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So Father, I pray that the one here this morning that's still fighting with that, that you would draw them to your son that you would show them that there's nothing but grace and love and kindness and mercy and forgiveness. There's nothing but adoption into your family. Sons and daughters of yours, brothers and sisters to Christ, who died for us. Not because we could ever earn it, but simply because of his love. So Lord, I pray that that message hits home. Father, I pray it begins to spill out of us in our conversations and the way that we view life. Father, evangelism is work but it should be worship. So help us to worship you in that regard. It's in Christ. Let me pray this morning. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please, do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.